Okay. Hello, welcome to a new episode of the Security Distillery. Today, uh, it's me, Josefina, and I'm here with uh, my co-students, James, first of all, who you already know, and also Costanza. Uh, Hi, everyone. <laughs> and uh, today we are recording an episode about the war in Ukraine, or uh, the past two years of full-scale invasion of Ukraine since, uh, yeah, the two-year anniversary, if you can call it that, is around uh, these days. So we thought we would have a look back at the past two years, what's happened, what did we expect would happen, uh, also how it's affected Russian foreign policy, uh, the EU and the US's support to Ukraine, the sanctions, and also a bit about how this is looking from the Russian side. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, Kustansa, because I know that you were actually in Russia when this full-scale invasion started. So how was that? Yes, um, I was in St. Petersburg when Russia invaded Ukraine. And I stayed there for a week or so before leaving on the night of the 28th of February. And the general sentiment while I was there was shock, anger and fear amongst the people of St. Petersburg. A lot of young people I came into contact with had lost all semblance of hope for their future as Russians, um, basically overnight. And some participated in the protests that took place all over the city although they did so knowing that the police outnumbered them, basically two to one, if not more, and that their life would likely become much harder because of their participation. But at the beginning, there was a lot of anger, which trumped the fear of being arrested or of disappearing entirely in some cases. Um, but obviously, with the passing of weeks and months, that changed. There was a lot of hopelessness and a lot of people thinking if I go and protest, nothing will actually change. The only thing that will change is that I'll be arrested and my life will be over. So is it actually worth it? Uh, many people left. I remember when we crossed the border into Estonia, there was a couple around 20 years old who crossed with us and the girl was Russian and her boyfriend was Italian. Um, and I remember that she was terrified. She was telling us that she'd left everything behind, that her family basically forced her to go since she could still build a future for herself outside of Russia. And she just had this lost expression, like she couldn't believe any of it was actually happening. So that was my experience those few days after the invasion, just general confusion. And yeah, there was a lot of anger and disbelief, but also fear and general resignation. You know, the idea that nothing, nothing will change no matter what we do. And I think it's really interesting to think back at those first few days now and compare the expectations we had then to what has actually ended up happening. Yeah, uh, thank you for that introduction. Um, so I think one of the biggest expectations going into the war was that Russia was going to be able to advance pretty rapidly using like armor and air power um, and probably be able to take Kiev within a few weeks um, or within a few days even potentially. Um, this was based upon Ukraine's fairly poor military performance, to say the least, uh, in 2014 and 2015, due to their institutional corruption and poor command and control systems. However, I think a lot of people underestimated just how much effort the Ukrainians put into, like, reforming their military, taking things seriously, and, like, also they were supported by, like, the US and the UK um, in training 
supply of new armaments, uh, especially with the British provi providing training in next generation light anti-tank weapons and laws in January and February 2022, just before the full-scale invasion. Um, and in reality, of course, while Russia did have some success in the south and eastern regions of Ukraine, they failed spectacularly in their attempt to take Kyiv with the notorious 40-mile traffic jam of military vehicles within the first week or so of the war. Uh, Russia also exposed its own significant corruption, which had been somewhat discounted, minimized by foreign observers, um, with lots of vehicles just barely working. Um, another expectation was the use of drones, especially sort of commercial ones such as quadcopters, would be of relatively little um, utility in the air due to the airspace being contested. And this, of course, was based on Western experiences of drones such as the Reaper drone in the Middle East against insurgents who had very little anti-air capability. I'll just throw in a comment there because... If it is true that the Western expert discounted the drones because of how they had been used against insurgent in the Middle East, then I would say the Western experts forgot to think about how the drones have been used by the militias in the Middle East against the US bases, for example, uh, who definitely did have anti-air capabilities. So long before the war in Ukraine, uh, it was visible that drones could be effective in swarming these defense systems. and. Because of this, how they could prove very effective, especially when used in combination with other more expensive capabilities. For example, the uh, Shia militias in Iraq and the Iranian Quds Force, uh, Quds Force itself had been using these tactics for years already. Uh, and if one is to believe these mysterious US officials who are often cited in the news, Russian soldiers were even sent to Iran to receive training for exactly these tactic, uh, tactics. Uh, and also Iranian personnel was sent to Russia to assist. So maybe where the West failed to foresee the use of drones in Ukraine was more related to seeing these capabilities as unsophisticated uh, and therefore failing to see that cheap doesn't always mean bad. Yeah, I think you're very right. The West did feel, fail to foresee the use of drones um, and especially these commercial ones, which you can buy for about... 300 500 to 500 euros or dollars um and then if you attach a little um, mortar shell to them you can blow up a two million dollar tank with e quite with relative ease so even if you take 20 drones to kill one tank you've still saved a lot of money compared to risking your own tank and i remember during the first year of the war where there were speculations about israel sending the iron dome to ukraine uh, people were discussing the possibility of an kind of like an Israel-Iran proxy war in Ukraine, uh, where Iran could finally try out its uh, offensive capabilities on the king of Israeli defense systems and vice versa. Uh, this never happened, though. But still, uh, I'm sure that Iran has been taking notes on how their drones have been performing against Western defense systems in general in Ukraine, and that there are more improvements to come than what we have already seen. Uh, maybe we will even see satellite-capable drones on the battlefield this year or in the Middle East. Yeah, I think that's uh, certainly a possibility. As well as um, for Iran, like they're getting a lot of a lot of like, battlefield testing of their equipment, which is always a very useful thing to have for any military. Another fairly major sort of 
um was sort of wasn't expected because a, a war wasn't expected to last this long however it's showing this war has shown a huge problem with um the lack of artillery shell production and lack of well general military production in especially the west um but even in russia and while Russia does have an advantage throughout the war so far, thanks to a very, very deep Soviet st uh, stockpile supply, that even now they are starting to have to use shells from North Korea, um, which also South Korea may be supporting Ukraine with ammunition, but if they're doing so, they've denied it, and if they're doing it, they're doing it in sort of a weird roundabout, selling it to the US and the US sending it to Ukraine, but not directly. Uh, because they're worried about Russia's influence in North Korea for potential, you know, escalation there. And another impact from that is that Ukraine is much more limited in how they use artillery. Uh, during the 2023 summer counteroffensive, Ukraine used about six to 8,000 shells a day, but wanted to use uh, around 10,000 a day, uh, compared to the Russian peak of 60,000 a day during the 2023 offensive their 2023 offensives um and i think this is sort of summed up by uh, ryan metal ceo saying that ukraine needs at least 1.5 million shells a year and while production and in the eu and the usa is planned to be expanded significantly it's a uh, still several years out for those sort of numbers to be feasible yeah and if i can jump in here i think it's a key point um to make yeah key point to make that ukraine is increasingly dependent upon western support um, although the U.S.'s contributions by far surpass other countries. But um, the flow of aid, both economic and military, has been impacted in the past few months due to the U.S.'s failure to pass the National Security Bill, which would include a foreign aid package of almost $60 billion uh, for Ukraine. And there's been a lot of friction surrounding this bill, mainly due to uh, disagreements on immigration laws and border security, um, and this is perhaps a symptom of Ukraine fatigue, as it's being called, or of impending change and uncertainty in the US with the 2024 presidential elections inching closer and with Donald Trump being the likely Republican nominee. Um, and that's worrying because Trump has already made a series of statements that shed uncertainty on the future of US aid to Ukraine and of US NATO relations should he be reelected. Like, for example, two weeks ago at a rally in South Carolina, uh, Trump complained of insufficient defense spending in some NATO member states and went on to say that should Russia attack one such state, he would not be there to defend them. Now, although the national security bill was passed by the U.S. Senate on the 13th of February, after months of discussions and deliberation, many Republicans in the House of Representatives will probably oppose it, forcing Ukraine to a longer wait with his front lines resisting thus far with a fraction of Russia's artillery and manpower, like you were saying, James. And it begs the question, will the EU manage to fill the gap or will Ukraine be forced to fend for itself? And if so, will it be able to resist the increasing Russian war effort? And since the beginning of the war, Russia has significantly expanded its military industrial production Right now, there's around 3.5 million Russians employed in the sector um, with a general record low unemployment rate of around 3%. And a large part of these workers is receiving increasingly high salaries, although apparently many are forced to work overtime. The head of the Russian Union of Industrial Workers, Andrei Chekmenyov, said that, and I quote, 
Today in Russia, practically all military industrial enterprises with additional state orders are working according to the schedule. It is actually forbidden to refuse additional shifts. You either agree or you're fired and there's no third option. So there are day shifts and night shifts ensuring that the war machine never stops and workers are promised protection from the military service, which actually right now offers a salary of around 1,800 pounds a month to those who enlist, mm. which is actually three times the average salary in Russia right now, which is around 682 pounds, or at least it was in October 2023. Oh. And um, Russia's proposed budget for 2024 has already been approved and it envisions an increase in its defense spending by 70% compared to 2023, with 6.5% of its GDP directed at military spending. So it's safe to say that Russia is not planning on putting an end to this war anytime soon. Yeah, and, and this actually ties in with how Russian foreign policy has been altered in general after the invasion of Ukraine. Because one thing is the need for military capabilities and ammunition, as James pointed out. And another one is the need for general foreign trade, access to the global market, flow of foreign currency. Um, and the sanctions from the West have made this more difficult, but not impossible. And especially from what we've seen the last year, uh, Russia has been finding its ways to circumvent these sanctions. And as a result, we've seen Russia invest to its south and east uh, in an effort to make itself non-reliant on trade with the West and also use of the US dollar. So if we take a look southwards, uh, first of all, Russia is investing in its relationship with Iran, uh, buying Iranian drones, as we have already talked about. And also, as of this week, Iran is reportedly sending ballistic missiles as well, which is something that has been speculated about for yeah two years since the war erupted. Uh, and apparently now it's happening. And also infrastructural projects uh, in Iran and through Iran in what's known as the International North-South Transport Corridor goes through the Caspian Sea and then uh, onwards through Iran. And this also connects to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so this is beneficial both for Russia and Iran, uh, but contrary to how it's often portrayed in the media, I would argue that this is not necessarily Russia committing to a strategic partnership with Iran. Uh, Russian Middle East strategy overall is about flexibility through balance, uh, which still seems to be the case. So the increase in Russian interest and investments is not limited to Iran. Russia also invests in its relationship with Iran's regional rivals and seemingly refrains from giving Iran concessions in return for these drones, uh, drone sales, and we'll see about the missile sales, uh, that would alter the strategic balance of the region as a whole. I would be very surprised if they paid Iran for these missiles with something that would alter the strategic balance, but I might have to eat those words, who knows. <laughs> and in general, uh, the actors of the Middle East seem to greet this renewed, uh, renewed Russian investment interest with open arms. And this is also because them, they themselves are trying to achieve a balance here by becoming less dependent on the US and the US's security guarantees and thereby achieving a position where they can play these great powers up against each other, both the US, Russia and China, and therefore gain more political influence themselves. And when it comes to China uh, and Russia's relationship with China, things are naturally a lot different than Russia's uh, relationships to the Middle East. China has thus far refrained from delivering weapons and ammunition directly, at least, to Russia, 
but nevertheless contributes with components and materials that are completely crucial for the Russian war effort. This includes different kinds of vehicles, machines, electronics, and spare parts, uh, things that Russia used to get from the West, uh, but no longer can. And China also helps Russia by buying and reselling Western components that Russia needs, as we briefly mentioned earlier. And they also coordinate their diplomatic approaches to international forums like the United Nations. And this leads to Russia becoming steadily more dependent on China. And it changes the balance of power between them. So Russia's approach to China costs more than it costs to approach these actors in the Middle East and Africa, for example, because China is such a powerful player. Uh, but Russia d doesn't really have much of a choice, though, uh, which makes this a very favorable position to be in for China. Uh, and if I can jump in, it, it'll probably be a very interesting um, scenario that will present itself uh, whenever, however, this war will end. Um, with the relations between the US, China and Russia, with this power balance being shifted right now. Definitely. So China can sit still and essentially watch these two other great powers uh, weaken each other. And also, when it comes to the Chinese population, uh, Russia does seem to earn a lot of support for its effort. Uh, Chinese media outlets often take pro-Russian stances and even repeat Russian disinformation campaigns. And according to a poll from November 2022, so quite a long time ago, but still, 40% uh, of the Chinese respondents said that the Russian actions in Ukraine were not wrong, as opposed to only 20% saying that it was a violation of international law, and then 30% saying that it was wrong, uh, but that the circumstances should be considered. And yeah, I guess speaking of popular support for the war, a series of polls were conducted across the past two years in Russia, mainly by the Levada Polling Center and Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center. And these actually show that the majority of Russians support the war in Ukraine. Around 75% uh, of them do, although only a smaller percentage includes um, actual fervent patriots. So actually 45% are strongly convinced of their support while the rest have accepted the situation with what Carnegie calls learned indifference, which is a sort of perpetual resignation to the state of events, which is kind of what I was referring to at the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the idea is, this is how things are. What can we do if not support our boys, our soldiers? Um, yeah, and although, of course, there are those who strongly oppose the invasion and the war, which amount to around 20%. The West's initial hope of domestic uprisings as a result of the sanctions and battered economy has dwindled in the past two years. Many Russians actually support Putin and therefore support his military actions without really wondering whether they're right or wrong. Others strongly believe that Russia had no other choice but to invade and that this war is actually a reflection of Russian resistance to Western influence and corrupted values. Obviously, these beliefs are the result of Russia's very successful disinformation campaigns and propaganda across the region. And the Russian opposition has actually just lost a great source of hope with the abrupt death of Alexei Navalny, but which I won't get into too much because Josefina has already analyzed that in the previous podcast episode. Please listen to the previous episode of Intelligence Espresso. Absolutely. <laughs> 
And uh, with this, Putin has achieved an even tighter control over domestic politics. So although in the past week, past days actually, vigils and protests have been held across Europe, in Russia the scene was very different. Um, though those few who held vigils or did as little as lay flowers in memory of Navalny were arrested. So now there's, not that it was different before, but even more so now, Putin answers to no one and the likelihood of popular op opposition or even revolt only seems to weaken by the day. And this could obviously still change in the future if the war were to cause living standards for Russian to, Russians to plummet. If we look at the economic trends right now, we can see that Russian economy is becoming increasingly dependent on the war industry, meaning that living standards will likely deteriorate should the war continue or should there be a reduction in military spending, according to Carnegie. But obviously these are only predictions. And so far, as we have seen, a lot of predictions have been disproven. And so as of now, the crackdown on any kind of opposition is immediate and ruthless and any deviation from the party narrative is met with harsh punishment. And there doesn't seem to be enough desperation or even motivation for people to ignore that risk right now. And even if there was, like we saw a few months back with the national military conscription in Russia, the easiest solution would be to flee the country rather than to stand up to the government. Now moving on to popular sentiment towards Ukraine and towards the war in Europe and the West in general. According to polls carried out by Eurobarometer that were published in December 2023, popular support for Ukraine is still strong in the West, two years into the war. Numbers are generally similar to what they were a year ago, although in some cases support for Ukraine has slightly decreased although this is largely associated with the cost of living crisis rather than a radical change in opinion or decrease in moral support of any kind. So for example, those in favor of financial aid to Ukraine decreased by 3%, but they are still a solid 72%, mm. while those in favor of humanitarian aid to Ukraine have actually increased by 1%, reaching a total of 89% of people supporting that. The numbers that are a bit worrying, however, come from the polls carried out in the US. So according to Eurobarometer, the number of Americans who oppose support for Ukraine has grown steadily in the past two years, especially among Republicans. And around 56% of respondents between the ages of 18 and 39 believe that Ukraine's problems are not the US's and that America should not interfere. So. Once again, these numbers underline the importance of the upcoming U.S. presidential elections for the future of Ukraine, since, as we said, the U.S. is one of the main contributors um, to aid going to Ukraine. Yeah, the U.S. alone contributes with almost as much as the whole European Union does itself. The European Union is still the biggest contrib contributor, but of like a one state contributor, it's definitely the U.S., without a doubt. So. so yeah, this begs the question, how will domestic politics, both in the US and the EU, influence the aid to Ukraine in the coming months or years? Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting when you look at the statistics over what countries contribute the most to the war in Ukraine, to look at that and then compare it to a map. Uh, yeah. Because you can see that uh, the, the closer a country is to the, its border with Russia, 
the more, at least in percentage of its GDP, it contributes to aid for Ukraine. So, um, for example, my country, Norway, uh, is actually on the top when it comes to the share of GDP uh, contribute, contributed uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and then Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Denmark, Poland, Slovakia, and the list goes uh, in that direction. So, of course, the closer it is to your own borders, the more you feel about feel uh, sense of urgency. Sen- sense of urgency. You feel it kind of uh, like a personal uh, personal problem, as opposed to the people in the U.S. who maybe see this as a very far away problem. Uh, and not something that's threatening you and your kids and uh, your neighbor's dog. Uh, whereas if you are in Europe, uh, you are a little bit more nervous about his, how this can actually affect you and your country and your family if if Russia gets his way in Ukraine and then what's next? And it's actually quite interesting that you brought that up uh, and that Poland was on the list of uh, main contributors because... Actually, when it comes to popular opinion with regards to whether Ukraine should be uh, made a part of the EU, Poland's position on that, or the people that support that idea, decreased by 12% in the past year or so. So again, domestic politics, even in countries that are quite close to it all, um, could play a very big part in the months to come. Definitely. So I guess in these few months with the national security bill still in the balance and the EU trying in some way to fill the gap, it all depends on Ukraine's ability to resist this war of attrition that is being carried out by Russia. Um, We've seen how Russia is ramping up its military production um, and is not doing so in view of significant ground victories, but... It's doing so to exhaust Ukraine's front lines because obviously it knows how much um, the Ukrainian military is dependent upon Western support. And it's kind of biding its time, waiting for Ukraine to run out of weapons and financial resources. But I think it's obvious that Ukraine won't give up until it physically has nothing left to fight with. But it is also obvious that neither will Russia. Yeah. Uh, Russia's main weapon at this point is is time. Of course, it's also like um, kinetic attacks, but um, there are two fronts. It's the military front and then it's the civilian front. And Russia wants it to be as difficult as possible to live in Ukraine as a civilian uh, in order to kill their will to fight. Uh, without a c- civilian society to protect, there is nothing left to fight for. And How long can people actually live without basic necessities like electricity, food, and safety for your family? According to polls done among Ukrainians, an increasing number of people are pessimistic about their future, naturally enough. Uh, But it it does make a difference. Because if all people leave Ukraine, the society stops, and then the whole thing eventually collapses. And the same is the case for the external aid. If Ukraine did not receive financial aid from the EU and the US, uh, the country would quickly go bankrupt. Some experts say within three months and then after six months uh, the country would collapse. And we have to remember that Russia's stance is stronger now than it was one year ago. Russia has mobilized heavily and now has three times as many soldiers available as Ukraine has. Uh, Russia has managed to circumvent the sanctions 
from the West, as we've already discussed, and receive aid from many parties, including China. I think it's also important to note that not only is Russia managing to circumvent sanctions, but its um, economic shift towards the war industry is actually helping its its economy grow. So Mm. it's gaining also a lot of uh, traction when it comes to the economy just by staying in the war, which is obviously very different from what is going on in Ukraine. (laughs) And the longer the war goes on, uh, the deeper or the further away from the West uh, Russia's finances go and like the more new routes they find to the global market, the more permanent these changes will be. So even if the war ends, the sanctions are lifted against Russia some someday uh, in the future. Um, it's sure that the, the economic world will not look the same as it did. And this is something that a lot of experts can comment a lot better than me. <laughs> <laughs> but I still find it a very interesting point uh, about this East-West split of the financial world. What that does to the future impact of sanctions as a political tool, tool mm. to... Uh, handle conflict all over the world really uh, it has been really dependent on the this uh, status of the US dollar and Russia has kind of set an example set a precedent let's say on how to survive under sanctions and I guess Iran as well yeah I would but, say yeah. Iran Iran did it first <laughs> <Iran> did <laughs> but, <laughs> and Iran has taught Russia how to do it no yeah. I <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm a little bit too much Middle East oriented. I, I acknowledge that, but <laughs> no. please, James. That as well, both parties did, like both Russia and Iran did sort of build their economy around getting sanctioned uh, because they knew it would happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to to wrap up this episode, we can conclude that a lot has changed. Uh, the use of drones has changed. Um, the view on... The Russian military has changed, I would say. Maybe people were underestimating the commitment that Russia would put into this war mm. two years in. I don't think many people uh, foresaw a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Taking a few of the eastern regions, maybe, but like going for the capital, I don't think anyone uh, expected that. Or yeah. some people, I'm sure, expected that and were really pleased with themselves but like in general people did not my dad if you're listening (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure he is (laughs) but yeah in general people didn't really expect that to happen so things have really played out a lot differently than what most experts were saying um and we still have probably some years left of this conflict if if not of conflict for sure of consequences definitely Um, this will definitely change everything as we said politically economically the way that as we said political tools are used to deter yeah invasions or conflicts okay i think we have reached the end of what we were planning on talking about today of course one can talk about this conflict for as long as one wants uh, and also the years of conflict that came before this invasion of 2022 but uh, for this time, I think we'll wrap it up here. Thank you for listening. And thank you to my colleagues for this wonderful conversation that we had. Yeah, thank you. Uh, tell us what you think in the comments. And 
We hope to see you soon for another Security Distillery podcast. Bye. Mm-hmm.